Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you want to be a part of the show, then you can give me a call on that listener hotline. That number, 303-832-0217. And you can also find that number as well as all the other contact links in the description of this show and on the show today i will be speaking with chairman and ceo of a relatively new airline called avello airlines andrew levy will be on the show to talk about his new airline and about other airlines and the travel industry trends and rising fuel costs and the pilot shortage and much much more and andrew was previously a co-founder and president of allegiant airlines he was the chief financial officer at united and he's also a board member of Copa Airlines. That's the leading Latin America airline. So obviously, he has some big-time experience with the big carriers and with starting a new airline, a new low-cost carrier. And that's what he's tried to start with, Avello. It'll be interesting to hear from him about all that's happening in the world of airlines and everything that's uh, going on with pilot shortages and uh, all those other issues. So it should be interesting to hear from him. And uh, they they fly. They don't fly out of Denver International Airport. They actually fly out of this little airport called uh, Fort Collins Loveland up in northern Colorado to Las Vegas and back. It's just a couple of days a week. Uh, it's the same route that they used to fly with with um, Allegiant Airlines. But uh, Allegiant, they stopped flying it. And I think... Maybe that's why uh, Velo is uh, and Andrew decided, hey, well, let's go fly out of Fort Collins again. I, I'll ask him and and find out uh, if that's true. Uh, anyway, first, I want to tell you a couple of stories. Speaking of airlines and, and airplanes and stuff, a couple of stories from my latest baton twirling trip with my daughters. As this time, we went to Omaha. It was my first time to Omaha. It's a town that it seems like it's really trying to improve its downtown area. The ballpark where they do the College World Series, that was really nice. They have a nice, it looked like a nice convention center area. They're trying to make it more, it seems like they're trying to make it more hip um, and uh, millennial uh, or whatever. Um, <laughs> goes there. Uh, we ate dinner in the old market area. It, it was uh, actually the coolest part of that area for me and of the old downtown was the original brick roads. So they have those uh, the brick roads that were originally laid down there in that t- part of town. And actually, you can see in some spots where they laid asphalt down over those brick roads because you'll see a, a hole in the uh, asphalt, and then you can see the original brick. And I thought those uh, brick roads were pretty cool. Um, it, it brought out like that old world atmosphere. I have no idea how difficult it would be, and I imagine it would be, to plow those roads when it snows because the the blades of the snowplow they they must not be able or they must put them at an angle almost facing down so you're scraping it instead of having it straight down that you're pulling these bricks up out of the street um i can't imagine how tough that would be uh we flew out on frontier it wasn't as actually as bad as i i was expecting uh sure the seats are hard and very uncomfortable and really close together and the trade table is more like a small notepad than anything. Uh, it's so tiny, it's really almost unusable for anything except maybe, maybe holding the drink. I mean, that's that's about the only thing you can really do with the Frontier tray table. And it's so funny when they say, will you please make sure your tray table is up? What, what does it matter? It's so tiny, it's not going to get out of the way if I need to get off this plane. Anyway, so I, I sit down in my seat. 
uh, on the Frontier flight. And, and there's this guy sitting next to me, uh, and he tries to start a conversation. He's in the middle seat, and I'm in the aisle seat. And he says to me, he looks over, he goes, so uh, what brings you to Omaha? And I, and I looked at him, and I dropped this perfect response on him. I said, this plane. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. And he just stared at me. <laughs> and then I, I looked at him, and I said, well, ba-dum-bum, right? Like, like a rim shot. And, and then he's just staring at me, and he puts his earbuds on, and he started watching a show. I thought that was a brilliant line. I mean, come on. What brings you to Omaha? This plane. <laughs> uh, my wife was not as giddy as I was about that response. Uh, my girls just kind of shake, you know, they're shaking their heads. Uh, <laughs> Daddy, what are you? Because, uh, well, they get it. Uh, by, uh, it. It was my first flight, though, since lifting the mask mandate, and that was really nice. I saw maybe... 20% of the people in Denver with a mask on, and it was maybe 10% of the people in Omaha coming back that had their mask on. Uh, oh, yeah, funny. These two people from Washington State, on, on my return back from Omaha uh, on Southwest Airlines, we took a one-way on, on uh, Frontier and, a, and way back on Southwest. Uh, but these two people from Washington State sit down next to me. They both had masks on, and, and then the woman uh, looks at me, and she asks, asks if I was vaccinated. Uh, and, and then I say, uh, okay. And then she says, uh, she takes off her mask and, and, and I guess she's not concerned with all the people that are otherwise sitting two feet from her in the front of, of her in the other seats or, or the people two feet behind her in, in those other seats. She only wanted to know if I was, and, and she didn't take a poll of the rest of the plane. And then they took off, they both took off the masks and then we're, we're, I mean, I, I, anyway, I thought it was. I thought that was interesting. Uh, I also thought it was interesting on the Southwest flight that they had their seats in the offset position. So the rows weren't exactly next to each other. So you're used to uh, getting on a plane and you sit in one row and the other row on the other side of the aisle is exactly where you are. Well, these were offset a little bit by about half. So the rows, I, I don't, I, I, they're, they're designed that way. I, I, I talked about this on a, on a previous episode a long time ago. But they're supposed to make it easier to get in and quicker to get in or and out of the seats. Now, I, I didn't notice if it was. Maybe a little bit on getting off of the plane. It was a little bit easier to get off the uh, off the plane that way. But it, it seemed pretty similar to me. Um, I did notice, though, that those seats were much closer together. And I think that's another reason that they had them offset so they could get the uh, seats closer together. And the way I noticed it was when I put the tray table down, because they have full size tray tables on Southwest and it was into my tummy. Now I'm not getting that fat. I, I am a little bit overweight, but I, I was, I'm not so big that my tummy is hitting normally a tray table that comes down. <laughs> That's exactly what happened on, on this flight. But obviously the, the air plane, uh, the air, uh, airlines are doing this so it can be more profitable for them. Um, it, it was, it, it, and being offset was a little different for me in the way I could see my family. Cause usually the way we sit it up is, uh, my two girls and my wife are in one, in the three seats in one side. And then I, then there's the aisle and then I'm in the aisle seat on the other side. So we could basically have four across with the aisle in the middle. Uh, but with them being offset, they were sitting a little bit ahead of me. And actually, I think I would have liked them being behind me. Uh, so if you ever get another Southwest flight and you and you want to have like a row like that, I, I have your people 
sitting behind you a little bit because it's easier to see them when you turn around and, and you can see them that way. So anyway, that's just my <laughs> me, me helping you on, on your next Southwest flight. Uh, oh, yeah, then there's this story. So my family all has TSA PreCheck. It, it's, it's one of the best $85 I've ever spent in my life. It's well worth it. It's for five years. Even if you take a flight once or, or twice a year, it is still worth it. So we go to security, and I have my daughters, and they're batons. And, and because we're going for a baton trip, they have their special baton bags. Imagine a pool cue bag, if you will, but it's a little bit bigger than that. Um, it's soft-sided. It's long, like, yeah, I don't know, may, maybe a yard long or so, so it fits their batons in there. They have this flare, you know, they have these their little whatever stickers or stuff on their bag. So it's obviously, it's not a weapon. That's obvious. Law, it, it's a soft-sided bag. Anyway, we've never had a problem with taking them through security on any trip that we've gone for baton. And then there was this time. So one agent told me that we can't take them onto the plane because they are considered a blunt force object. I said, we've never had a problem before, but that didn't matter to her. Look, look, I'm pragmatic enough to know that there's no winning an argument with a TSA agent once they've made up their mind. Their, their rule is whatever their rule is, and that's the way it is, period. So I had to come up with a different plan. Now, she said I was going to have to go take these baton bags and go check them. Well, they're not really the kind of bags you want to check. They're not like a regular suitcase bag. They would probably get damaged, and we wouldn't want the batons bent. I mean, it's really a hassle. And I never tried to check these baton bags. I even asked, hey, can I just take them down to the uh, the gate, and maybe they can just check them down there? Is that okay? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. You got to go get out. Get <laughs> so basically, uh, she took me over to the exit to the the exit and escorted me out of that north so in in Denver they have two security areas the TSA precheck is in the north security area so i'm thinking all right so she escorts me out and, and i'm thinking all right why why can't i just try the south security area maybe maybe it's going to be a, di a different result with a different TSA agent so the, as I'm as I run down to the South Security area and I just send my girls along to the gate. We had plenty of time, so it's not like we're running to catch the plane or anything. So I get down to the South Security area, and there was a line there. Maybe it was going to be 15 minutes or so, and they and they don't have pre-check on that side. But that didn't matter to me. I just wanted to make sure I could get through with these two baton bags. So I get over to the South Security and I'm walking to the line. Uh, where the entrance to the line there, it's, it was probably going to take, yeah, like I said, 15 minutes. Well, someone asked me if I want to try clear and they'll sign me up for free for two week trial. And it only takes about three minutes. And, and really there's no way to get through the security and, and you have this free thing. So well, why don't you try it? And I said, okay, <laughs> I go through the process. Uh, they take a picture of your eyes and they took my uh, left hand fingerprint and they took my ID and then I paid with my American Express card. She said, hey, this card actually will pay for your membership uh, every year. So bonus. There you go. Uh, and so then I, I, so I sign up the whole thing and I go into the, the clear line and the guy looks at me because there's, there's a person there. When you go over to the clear, uh, it basically just makes sure that it's you. So you don't need ID. You don't need to bring your ID to the uh, uh, airport. You can actually just use yourself, right? That's basically what clear does. 
So I get over there, and the guy says, he he says, uh, this is not, he because he sees my boarding pass. He goes, boarding pass, and then look in this thing. And he looks at it, and he says, TSA pre-check. And I says, uh, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't care. I don't need TSA pre-check. And he says, well, you have to take off your shoes and all your stuff. And I said, no problem. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. I just want to get through. And he says, all right, finally, he takes me up to the TSA security person. He says, "She's he's good. And then I just show the boarding pass, and they let me over to the x-ray scanner. And I put my two baton bags on the x-ray scanner, and guess what? They go through, no problem. Boom! Right through and, my, and on my way to the gate. See, some agents say the batons are a problem, and other agents don't. And at least I had the option in Denver to go from the north security area to the south security security area and, and try to get through. I I also didn't have a problem in Omaha, and and because in Omaha in those smaller airports usually they only have like one little security area, and if if that happened I I don't know what I would do. I had to come up with some other plan I guess, maybe go through another regular security line rather than the pre check line where they they didn't see me in the other. I don't know. But we also had a bag full of eight baton trophies. They let those go through. Some of those with sharp edges. Those could have been a blunt force object as well. So anyway, that, <laughs> that is your, there's, your, uh, there's your baton trip update with more baton trips scheduled uh, for later on this summer. I will tell you, though, I do prefer those smaller airports where you can pick up your rental car right outside the terminal and not going on a shuttle. Tampa is fine because they have that train that takes you down to the garage with all the rental cars. But overall, it was a good trip. Um, yeah, good trip. Uh, it was a year ago that the newest mainline airline started flying. Avello Airlines premiered on April 8th, 2021 at Hollywood Burbank Airport. They fly mostly to smaller airports from their hub in Burbank, California, as well as New Haven, Connecticut. Now, here in Colorado, they fly out of the small northern Colorado regional airport near Fort Collins to Las Vegas. Sounds like they're being successful uh, flying over 6,000 people in less than six months. So I wanted to learn more about this airline and what it's like to start a small airline and try to go up against the larger carriers and if this can be a successful model. So I invited the founder, the chairman, and CEO of Avello Airlines, Andrew Levy, to be here on the show and talk more about his new airline, about other airlines, travel trends, uh, rising fuel costs, the pilot shortage, and so much more. Andrew was previously a co-founder and president of Allegiant Air, chief financial officer at United, and he's a board member at Copa Air the leading Latin American airline. Andrew, thank you so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. <laughs> thank you. It's great to be here. All right, Andrew, before we get into the airline stuff, let us know more about Andrew. You have roots in Argentina, right? Yeah. No, my uh, my mom was born and raised and moved here as an adult. Uh, she had met my dad when he was uh, working down there for the U.S. government and uh and so uh, she is uh, part of a large family down there and a very close family. Uh, so I, uh, that's a big part of my life. And, uh, and uh, I get down there, uh, you know, whenever I can, which is unfortunately not as often as I wish I could. <laughs> it, it seems like you've always loved the airline industry. Was there a moment when you were maybe a kid or at some other time that you said to yourself, I want to work with planes? You know, um, I, no, not really, actually. Um, I've traveled a lot throughout my life, in part to go to Argentina, as we just discussed. And I, I, I ended up living in another country when I was young, again, due to my father's job. So I'm certainly used to getting on airplanes and traveling. But honestly, uh, I just kind of backed 
doored my way into the industry just by chance. I was graduating uh, from law school at uh, Emory in Atlanta, and I, uh, I was at the time actually hoping to get a job with the Securities and Exchange Commission, but I had an interesting opportunity with uh, an upstart new airline called Value Jet Airlines it was back in 1994, and I just thought it sounded really just kind of interesting. And I, I ended up uh, joining the company in its early days. And within a week or two, I was hooked on it uh, because of the fast pace, the incredible uh, kind of dynamism that exists in this industry. There's just so many things that are happening all the time. Um, it's, it's always changing and it's just really exciting. And so I really got hooked on both uh, aviation, I guess, at that point, but but also early stage, fast growing entrepreneurial companies, and so that's something that's been a passion of mine since then. Tell me about your decision to acquire. Because fast forward a couple of years, as you've been in the industry, and and then you decide you were working, uh, started Allegiant, and they were doing pretty well. And you could see from their stock trends, they were actually doing really well. You do uh, other work at some of the other major airlines, and then you have a decision to acquire Extra Airways. Why did you want to start another airline? Well, uh, you know, look, I, I never uh, had a chance to kind of, uh, you know, do this uh, where, you know, I'm front and center and, and, and I'm really uh, putting a lot of risk out on the table. And uh, Allegiant was, uh, you know, Maury Gallagher and I uh, were there. We took it out of bankruptcy when it was a teeny tiny little airline. I had one airplane at the time and we built it into, into a really great company. Um, this is kind of similar. The bought extra had one airplane. It was even smaller than Allegiant was. I think we had about 11 people on the payroll when I bought it. Um, and you know, I, I became really convinced that there was room for more low cost, low fare seats in the United States air market. Um, you know, there'd been this period of consolidation for a long time, started at, you know, sometime after nine 11. And we ended up with an industry that had very few participants in it. And as a result, for the last 10 years uh, leading up to the pandemic, uh, there have been broad-based profitability across all participants. And, you know, look, it's as simple as your profit is my opportunity. Uh, you know, I saw that uh, airlines were um, becoming less efficient, uh, earning really strong returns. And I really just believed that there was room for more in the U.S. And so I, I was uh, looking at doing this back in 2015. I ended up going to United instead. Um, but the itch uh, kind of never went away. And so when I had a chance to buy the company, to use it as a platform to create a new ultra-low-cost carrier in the U.S. with a different strategy, uh, I jumped at the chance and been working really hard at this uh, ever since then. My guest is Andrew Levy. He's the chairman and CEO of Avello Airlines. You started flying here in Colorado out of a really small airport. You really started the Avello model out of flying from small airports like Burbank and out of New Haven. Is flying out of these small airports like Fort Collins here in Colorado, is this a trend that could become bigger flying from these smaller airports to maybe just more regional bases? Um. Well, it's going to be a trend for us, for sure, because it's a fundamental part of our strategy. Uh, you know, this is something we did a little bit at Allegiant as well. Uh, and in fact, we flew to Fort Collins Loveland Airport back in the day uh, to Las Vegas um, from our headquarters. But so I'm familiar with the airport and I always liked it. And we did quite well there for many years. Um, 
you know, it's a big part of, of how I see the U.S. industry and how I see the opportunities that exist out there, which is that a lot of these secondary airports of large metro areas have been ignored over the past many years. There's been a continued focus uh, amongst most airlines in going into the really big airport. And uh, yet you have these you know, really great assets like uh, like Northern Colorado Regional Airport that are sitting out there that offer great convenience to the people that live, at least those that live relatively close to that airport. It's obviously a much better experience. Um, you know, in this case, small is simply better. Uh, you know, I, I don't know anybody who'd prefer to go to, uh, you know, uh, Los Angeles International instead of Burbank, as an example. They're just two fundamentally different experiences. One is easy, fast, convenient, and, and less hassle, less stress. And the other one is, you know, monstrosity of an airport. And you could say the same thing when you compare Fort Collins, Loveland, uh, Northern Colorado Regional Airport. Now, I guess I keep, I keep needing to uh, remind myself of the new name. Um, but you compare that to DIA. It's just a different experience. It's much nicer. It's much better. You save a lot of time. And so we think that that enables us to offer something that's unique in the marketplace. And uh, our whole business is about uh, providing not only low fares, but also a high level of convenience and ease of use. And airports like Northern Colorado uh, play right into that strategy. It is different than most other airlines, however, and I don't think that'll change. I think most other airlines will keep doing what they're doing, which is great. That leaves us this big opportunity out there that uh, we have in many airports around the United States, and we aim to go after them uh, one at a time. My guest is Andrew Levy. He's the chairman and CEO of Avello Airlines. We're talking about his new airline, well, relatively new airline, as well as uh, the growth of the airline industry, especially for these small markets. And as we were just talking about, not all these small markets work because I see that your airline is not going to be flying very soon from Eureka, California to Las Vegas anymore. You had to pull out of Grand Junction, which was serving the western slope of Colorado. So some of these smaller markets are, are maybe not as what, profitable or as, uh, a, a, I guess, a good enough market to have some of the, uh, have some of the flights uh, that, you're, yeah. that you're trying to get done? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a business, and, and we need to do things that make sense. And, you know, some markets work uh, really well, and some markets work less well. And, and, you know, sometimes it's a bit of a surprise as to the ones that work really well and the ones that don't. Um, but when you're doing something that others haven't done before, and uh, in the case of Eureka, we uh, are offering low fare flights to uh, L.A., you know, Burbank, and, uh, and also to Las Vegas. And this is not anything that's ever been done before. And uh, so you never know. You just, you know, you look at all the data you can and you make your best judgment and then you go in and you do it. And if it works, you keep doing it. If it doesn't work, then you don't. This market to uh, LA is is actually you know might be our best market in our whole company. It's uh, or at least on the West Coast, it is a really strong market. But to Las Vegas, it just wasn't good enough. It was okay, but look, especially with high fuel prices, which are uh, certainly causing us and all other airlines to have to make decisions like this. It just didn't make sense for us to continue to try to fly it. And, uh, and that's the case for Grand Junction and a few other markets. And, you know, I view that quite honestly uh, with a, a sense of pride in my view. I mean, I, I never like to go in and, and, uh, and have something that doesn't work. But if we never do things that don't work, that means we're not taking risk. And if we're not taking risk, then we're not moving forward as a business. I mean, this is, a, this is an entrepreneurial business. Uh, we have to take chances uh, in order to be successful. And, uh, and I'm okay with that. So everything we do won't work. But the most most things will, 
and uh, we'll keep doing the things that work and stop doing the things that don't work, and we'll just keep doing what we've been doing, and it worked pr- pretty well for us at Allegiant, and that same approach will work just fine for us here at Develop. And, and some cities are only served a few days a week, like either on Mondays and Thursdays or on just weekend days. Do you think that you could see more of uh, passengers deciding to go one-way trips rather than round trips on your airline just due to uh, that where you're only flying a couple of days a week, where passengers might use you for one of the two legs because they might prefer you for the Monday flight, but you don't come back on Wednesday when they need to. Yeah, I think that's certainly, uh, I think that happens today, I'm sure. I mean, we sell all of our seats are sold on a one-way basis. And so um, so there's no question that some people are perhaps doing exactly that. I, I don't know how many, of course. It's, it's impossible to really know for sure. Um, in the Fort Collins area, I think that is highly unlikely because, um, you know, since it is a different airport as opposed to DIA, which is what most people are used to using, you know, I suspect most people are beginning and ending their trips in, in the same airport in northern Colorado. Um, there are other markets where perhaps it's easier because, uh, uh, you know, maybe if you live up in Eugene, Oregon, for instance, you fly on us into Burbank. But because of what you noted as far as schedule preference, maybe you fly home out of LAX, you know, and it's, you know, it's not that big a deal. But um, but I'm sure there's some of that. And, you know, as there's more demand, then we're able to offer more flights and more frequency and, and hopefully keep people uh, as customers. You know, we really want our customers to prefer us and choose us. And, uh, you know, even that customer that, you know, the example of, of flying out of LAX back home to Eugene, um, I guarantee you one thing, they will not nearly, they will not enjoy the experience of flying out at LAX nearly as much as they will out of Burbank. That I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt. And, uh, and then apart from that, um, you know, look, what we've done a really good job of, apart from just choosing these different kind of airports is we are running a very reliable operation. We're on time, you know, but for weather related issues, we've done a phenomenal job and you can't do much about the weather, but we have a, a, a really, really high level of, of activity in terms of on-time performance, uh, completion factors, things that really matter to customers. You know, we, we, uh, we believe a schedule is a commitment we're making, and uh, it's really important to us to get people where they need to be on time. Um, apart from that, we have a terrific group of people that are uh, out there interacting with our customers. We, uh, we like to call it our soul of service. Uh, as a new airline, you know, one of the benefits is that we can hire our people from scratch, and uh, and in this case, we've really made a conscious effort uh, to to select people that are more people oriented, that enjoy being around people, enjoy being kind of caring of others. And not everybody's built that way, which is fine, right? But but when we're selecting people to uh, work at the airports or our flight attendants in particular that are going to be the ones interacting with our customers, we've made a real focus to try to attract those types of individuals, train them. Uh, empower them and uh, and let them uh, just do what they do naturally, which is just be friendly and warm and caring. And we get a lot of amazing comments about that from our customers. So I, you know, I think what we're working, what we're doing is working. People enjoy it. People like us, and uh, hopefully they'll uh, maybe sacrifice a little convenience and uh, fly on us, even if we don't fly uh, all the time every day. My guest is Andrew Levy. He's the Chairman and CEO of Avelo Airlines. We're talking about uh, his airline, of course, as well as some other airline trends we'll get into in just a second. There's another small airline startup called Breeze trying to do this similar 
flying from small airports, ultra low cost model. Uh, I flew a small, small airline from Portland to Redmond one time uh, called Boutique Air, and that's they do have some of these small regional flights with very small planes. Is, is there room for? two or more of these much smaller regional aircraft uh, operators that are trying to compete with uh, the bigger airlines? Well, you know, look, I, I, there's, there's, the U.S. is a huge air market, and those trends of consolidation happening has certainly opened up, I think, a lot of opportunities out there that could be served by many different types of airlines, including those that small that fly smaller aircraft. Um, in the case of Breeze, they're a lot more like us. Uh, their airplanes are certainly smaller. You know, we fly 737s that are either 147 or 189 seats. Their airplanes are definitely a good bit smaller than ours. They're much bigger than boutique. Um, and they're really kind of doing something that's different than we are. They're flying more kind of secondary market to secondary market. You know, they're focused on places like Norfolk and, and uh, you know, I don't know, Oklahoma City. Um, whereas we're focused on secondary airports and really big metro areas for the most part. And, you know, that's how we view northern Colorado is exactly that. Um, so it's a little bit of a different strategy, certainly a different aircraft choice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's room for a lot more growth in the U.S. There's, uh, um, I think there's enormous travel demand out there and people care by far and away mostly about price. They certainly also care about convenience and, um, you know, we're offering convenience in a lot of different ways in terms of what we do. And I think Breeze is doing a lot of the same. They're, they're fine uh, points that in the past it had uh, required a connection and obviously connecting in a hub takes a lot of time and, and it's not a lot of fun. And I think most people prefer nonstop for, for those reasons. And um, so, look, I, I'm, I'm sure those folks will do just fine. Their uh, chief commercial and chief financial officer used to work for me at Allegiant. So I know they're very capable. And the founder is a guy who's had a proven track record of success. So I'm sure they'll do great. Uh, I'm sure we'll do great. I, I can't speak to boutique. I'm just not as familiar with that. It is, however, what is different right now for those operating smaller airplanes uh, is uh, the pilot situation is definitely more challenging because, um, you know, pilots are uh, in, in, they're very popular right now. And we all wish there were more pilots that are getting trained and coming into the workplace. That'll happen over time because the careers become uh, really, really attractive. Uh, but it, it isn't going to happen overnight. And so the fact is pilots cost more. And it's a lot easier to pay pilots more when you have more seats on your airplane than if you have fewer seats on your airplane. And so I, I do think that that's probably the single biggest challenge for those operating smaller airplanes, like a boutique air, as an example. Um, really not an issue for us, uh, although, you know, obviously we're having to pay more for them. But, you know, I think that's an interesting trend that's happened in the industry. And I, I think we're going to be dealing with that for the next several years. So uh, I think the result is going to be maybe a little less capacity out there in the market than there would otherwise have been. Uh, I think it favors those who fly bigger airplanes as opposed to smaller airplanes. Um, and, uh, and over time, it'll, you know, capitalism, uh, 
uh, fixes and balances like that. It'll it'll sort itself out over time, but it'll take some time. But you know, in the you were talking about pilots, and in the past, in the days of TWA, it, it, the scene from the the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, it was they was walking around the Miami airport, and it was just cool. It was prestigious to be an airline pilot. Uh, it, it's not quite that way anymore. It really, to put it simply, it's lost its gravitas. So, so is is the pay and the work life balance issue the the major thing there, or or is it something else? How how do we attract more pilots to the business? Well, I think that um, uh, so. First of all, I would say I'm not sure I would agree that pilots are are leaving. I think, in fact, well, during the pandemic in the early days, there were certainly a lot of opportunities for some of the more senior pilots to uh, take a uh, a financial buyout. And, and leave their airlines and, and early, you know, maybe retire a little earlier than they might have otherwise planned to do so. But the reality is, uh, you know, uh, while, yes, I remember that scene from uh, the, uh, the Catch Me If You Can, I think it was called, right? Um, but look, it's, it's an amazing career. And, uh, uh, you know, the pay is terrific. Uh, the amount of time off is, 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 well, there's a lot of that. And most commercial airline pilots have really, uh, I think they view the career as probably as good as it's been since maybe pre-deregulation, you know, call it in the 70s or 80s, um, you know. And so I think that, that that's why it will attract more and more people to come into the industry because, uh, you know, look, in our case, uh, and we're not nearly the top of the pay scale, but, you know, our first-year captains are uh, making, uh, somewhere around $200,000 a year and they get about half the month off. And so, you know, there's not a lot of jobs that you can make that kind of money and, and, and get that much time off. And obviously if you're doing that for, let's say United or Delta, you are probably making maybe even double that per year and you probably have more days off. So it's a great career. Um, and the challenge here is, is getting, uh, is getting the training that you need and the hours you need in order to qualify to fly for a commercial airline like us, you need to have 1,500 hours of time, and and that really costs money. So you know you have to find a way to pay for that, and that's the biggest challenge. Um, certainly, there's a lot of effort across the industry to try to improve this issue and make it uh, more uh, uh, kind of a career that's more available to more people. Historically, what it's been is is you either you know become a, a flight instructor and you get your time that way, and and there's other wrong with that, and and you can certainly do that. Uh, if you come out of the military, you need fewer hours, uh, but you know obviously you gotta you gotta get into the military. You gotta be able to fly airplanes there for many years to get to that point, um, and uh, or you end up having maybe your your family has enough uh, affluence to be able to pay for those lessons so that you get your time. And I think that's the biggest issue is that, you know, very few people have that luxury. And so how do we make it affordable for people that are interested in, in a career to, to get the time they need to qualify under the law to fly uh, commercially? And, you know, I think there's no one answer there. But, but I think that the fact is it's a really good career. People are very much drawn to it because of some of the benefits in terms of work-life balance and the pay. Uh, in our case, we have even even a better uh, deal, I'd say, for pilots because uh, the way we schedule our airline is every airplane uh, ends up back where it started every day. And so, you know, in most uh, commercial airlines, you end up as a pilot, you're flying all over the place and you're overnighting in hotels all over the place. And, 
And, you know, look, some people really like that lifestyle, but uh, a lot of people appreciate going to work, flying a round trip, and then going home and sleeping in your own bed. And that's a quality of life we can offer that's exceptional. Uh, at least uh, it's quite different uh, as compared to most other uh, commercial pilot opportunities. So, uh, so far, so good for us in that regard. But, uh, you know, I think it's a challenge for everybody. And it's just going to be one of those things that takes time to kind of sort itself out. My guest is Andrew Levy. He's the CEO and chairman of Avello Airlines. There are some airlines that I know are looking into single pilot aircraft in the future and having the computer run the airplane except for takeoff and landings. Is that a way to get around some of the pilot shortage issues and and the training issues that you just mentioned? Well, um, I don't think it's a very likely outcome. Uh, Now, I think that it's, it's far more likely to see that on the cargo side. Um, I think on the passenger side, I think it's unlikely. I believe the technology exists to do that. Um, but I think that for a variety of reasons, it's highly unlikely that we'll see that anytime in the, in the near future or even in the, in the, in the distant future. Um, never say never, of course, but uh, I think we're a long way away from, from that actually happening. But I do think it's very possible we may see that for cargo operators like UPS and FedEx and others. Um, uh, so we'll see. But as far as I know, there's no effort, nor is there any momentum or even idea of having that be the case for scheduled passenger airlines in, in the United States, at least. I, I know of no such uh, push at this point in time. And it seems like electric planes are the dream for some. Do you think that that electric technology in the air is something that we could see in 10 or 20 or 30 years, maybe uh, hydrogen-powered airplanes? Is that, you think, a possibility? You know, um, yes. I think both of those things are possibilities. I know there's a lot of money going into R&D to try to make uh, that technology work. Um, Of course, the challenge is always one of cost and um, but but because of, of the desire and the importance of, of decarbonizing our world, clearly that's going to become even more important uh, for that research to occur. And there's a lot of advancements that have been made in that area. Um, I don't know what the outcome will be. Uh, there are There is definitely, as you mentioned, there's a big push for hydrogen. There's a big push for electricity. Where, where the industry standard ends up in the next 20, 30 years, you know, I guess we'll see. There's, there's people that are much smarter about that than I am. But I do think we're going to see continuous movement away from, um, you know, Jet A, you know, uh, uh, produced from petroleum. Um, and, but I think that it'll take a long time. And uh, I do, however, think that certainly when you talk about smaller airplanes, it's much more achievable. And I think there are already there's already, I think, a small airplane that's out there in commercial application with a, a small operator called Cape Air. I'm not sure if they've taken delivery of those airplanes, but they ordered a whole bunch of them. So, I mean, it's coming. But I think it'll take a while before you see an electric-powered airplane that carries 200 or 300 people uh, or hydrogen powered. I think that's many, many years uh, away, but but I do think it's coming. Just a question of when. It, it seems that sometimes when small businesses start gaining market share, they become a target of larger businesses and then are uh, gobbled up, taken over. Do you think that's something that could happen to 
your airline where some of the bigger airlines are looking at you going, that's working for you guys. We want to be a part of that. And the easiest way for us to do that is just to make you an offer. Um, well, look, it's certainly possible, but um, that, that really doesn't happen that often in this industry, um, at least the way you just described it. Um, you know, historically, mergers or acquisitions occur um, when companies are a lot larger than we are. Usually the best outcome for investors like, like mine, uh, who invested in an early stage business, usually the best outcome is a public offering. And, and then, you know, then it's all, it becomes issues about, you know, relative stock value and things of that nature and mergers are tough. And, uh, there's, there's obviously been a number over the years, most cases, at least in the last 10 years have been, um, where there's a weaker airline that's swallowed up by a stronger one or airlines that are in bankruptcy together, like Northwest and Delta, they were both in bankruptcy and they merged and came out of bankruptcy and U.S. Airways took over American when American was bankrupt, um, you know, Airtran was bought by Southwest and Airtran was doing okay, but they were, you know, they were not very strong. This was back in 2010, 2011. And more recently it was Virgin America uh, that was acquired by Alaska and Virgin America was never a very strong airline from a financial perspective. So, so that does happen. Um, but I think it's unlikely that that'll be our path. Uh, but you know, who knows? You never know. Um, right now what we're focused on doing is just building a great company and uh, to do that, it's, uh, you know, one one step at a time and you just got to make sure the fundamentals are working well. We're very small. We have eight airplanes now. By the end of the year, we expect to have about 15 and uh, we are feeling our way. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of things that are working really well. We're really encouraged about what we're seeing in the spring and in the summer in terms of revenue. Fuel prices are very high right now. So that's a, certainly a challenge. Um, but you know, we'll just keep doing what we do. And, and if one day somebody's interested in maybe acquiring us, well, you know, who knows? We'll see. But that, that's not really, that's not driving me in any way. We're just trying to build a great company. Uh, okay, good then. And the major airlines, the Deltas and Uniteds, they, they rely right now a lot on the business traveler. Everybody knows that. And they're, and they're starting the business traveler starting to trickle back slowly. But I would think your airline is more about leisure travel. Are, are you able, you think to sustain, uh, business on just the leisure traveler, or do you think you can take some of those business travelers away from the big guys? Will we see business travel come back to what it was before the pandemic? So, well, last last question, I'd say the answer is no. I, I do not believe business travel will come back to what it was before the pandemic. I think there's some portion of business travel that is permanently gone. Um, as people have gotten more accustomed to using, um, you know, video technology um, and seeing how effective you could be uh, over the past couple of years, uh, I just have a hard time believing that that won't have a permanent effect on the amount of business travel. I think there, clearly there's going to be business travel, and it's coming back rather quickly right now, at least according to the larger network airlines. Um, look, for us, yeah, you're right. We are not focused on that space. We cannot effectively compete for large corporate customers. That is uh, really, uh, uh, those customers are really fought over and won by the big three uh, in Southwest and maybe a little bit of Alaska and a little bit of JetBlue. It's just simply not what we're geared to do. Back to our kind of frequency pattern, as you, we talked about earlier, uh, you know, business travelers like frequency. They like to go and come back the same day or the next day. And that's just something that we don't offer as a business. And we're not really interested in offering that either. Um, 
leisure drives our industry though. And even the network carriers, the vast majority of their customers are actually leisure customers. Now they pay their bills because of the high yielding business customers that uh, pay uh, fares that are very high because they are less price sensitive. And that's how their businesses work historically. Um, but other airlines have done really well for many, many years focusing on leisure. My old company, Allegiant, is one example, is completely focused on the leisure customer. And they are the most financially successful airline in the world over the last, let's say, 15 years. So it works. It works well. It's a huge market. Uh, people love to travel. Uh, it is discretionary in some ways, but it is one of the last things people will give up. They will give up. They're buying the uh, the new refrigerator. They won't buy the couch. They'll give up the cable TV. They won't buy clothes, but they will absolutely travel. And and we've seen that time and time again. Um, so we like the position we're in. Uh, people are really focused right now. It seems on experiences and 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 really you know having those types of experiences are really usually related to uh, to a travel related experience and. Um, that plus the baby boomers retiring and that, that very large demographic with a lot of money and, and now a lot of time, uh, they like to move around as well. So we, we think the demographic trends are very much in the favor of, of travel, uh, particularly for personal reasons, leisure mostly, visiting friends and relatives, second home ownership. All those trends are really wind at our backs. And so we, we think we've got just an enormous opportunity to, to, to capitalize on those trends. And uh, and we think we have, uh, you know, well, we, we, we're off to a great start. Uh, just in the last few minutes that we have with you, Andrew Levy, Avalo Air, uh, Airlines Chairman and CEO, uh, I wanted to ask you about what's next for Avalo Airlines. Where do you see yourself in five, t- five years, 15 years, 25 years? Do you see expansion into other parts of Colorado as well, Colorado Springs, and maybe even coming back to Grand Junction? Well, um, you know, uh, we don't have a master plan, I'd say. So I think that if we just continue doing what we're doing, that the byproduct will be that we are much bigger. Um, and and so that's how I like to get the organization focused, which is just, hey, be in the present one day at a time and uh, put one foot in front of the other. And if you do that consistently well, then over time you end up and you look up and you realize, wow, we're a lot bigger now because we, we had the right to grow because we're earning a good return and things of that nature. Um, so I do think we will be very successful and I think with that will come, uh, growth and size, but, uh, you know, I'm not a big believer in bigger is better. I just think better is better, uh, but better usually ends up being bigger. Um, Colorado uh, is a great market, obviously a lot of growth, uh, in Colorado, a lot of people moving to Colorado. Uh, certainly we see that up in the, uh, the, the Northern Colorado area. Um, I think the same phenomenon is, is true in Colorado Springs, south of Denver. So that is an airport that we find to be really attractive and really interesting. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We're obviously not the only ones who think that that's an attractive airport, though. So we try to do things that others aren't doing. And so, uh, but we'll see. Grand Junction, look, I think Grand Junction is a, is a really good market. I mean, when we started Grand Junction, it was in during the pandemic, which, you know, arguably we're still in a pandemic, but it's not like it was last summer. And, uh, and of course, we had the Delta variant that kind of clobbered us in the middle of the summer, you know, in July and August. And that really affected our performance. And Grand Junction was one that just at the time, it just didn't work. So I still think Grand Junction is a really interesting market. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we were to go back and try that again in the future. 
but uh, but we'll see. You know, we'll 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 see in time. We'll figure those things out. And finally, I uh, want you to weigh in on this question that I received from a viewer recently. It was from Dean from Lakewood, Colorado, who wrote to me and asked, I recently got an alert that said 100 flights had been canceled at DIA in anticipation of bad weather. I'm really curious about how this works at the airlines. What's the logic? How do they select what flights to cancel? And with your experience with obviously your own airline and so many others that you've been with, so what is the logic there? How, how do you decide to cancel which, uh, which flights when there's either bad weather or staffing issues that we've seen in the last uh, year or two years? Well, you know, obviously each case is going to be different, right? And and but I can tell you that the the larger legacy airlines, uh, at least at least from my experience, um, will take into account a lot of operational things. You know, making sure that you want to try to make sure that delays like that or disruptions don't continue on for day after day after day. And so it really matters not just where the airplane is supposed to be today, but where is it supposed to be tomorrow? Where's the crew supposed to be tomorrow? So you have to kind of be looking out at least a day, if not more, ahead of time to make those decisions. But in, you know, if everything else is the same, you know, look, you're going to cancel flights that have fewer people on them. You're going to cancel flights that... Uh, that don't have your elite customers. If you're a legacy airline, if you have a bunch of, uh, if you're United, you got a bunch of global services customers that are connecting to a flight that's going over to Europe, let's say, you know, you're going to be much less likely to want to pick on that flight. Um, so all those things do factor into the mix. And, uh, uh, and you know, uh, every airline approaches it a little bit different, a little bit different from a philosophy perspective. Um and it must be business. hard for you guys because you have so few flights and they're so, uh, you, know, yeah. direct, you know, from one place to another. So, yeah, look, and we, and we fortunately, I mean, look, when there's weather, there's weather. And we've certainly uh, canceled uh, flights due to weather. In fact, I think every flight we've ever canceled. But I think one case we had a COVID related issue where, you know, we had crew members that, that this was back during Omicron where, you know, everybody was getting COVID. And that caused us, I think, to cancel literally only one flight which uh, was pretty good compared to the rest of the industry. They'd had huge problems with this at the end of the year and beginning of the year, as you, as you probably recall. Um, but, you know, look, weather gets in the way, and that's always tough. And for us, when we're so, being so small, what's really important to us is to get out in front of it so that it doesn't continue and roll into the day after day after day after day. Um, it's better to inconvenience a smaller number of people when we have to, and we hate doing that. But if we have to make a choice, we'd rather inconvenience fewer people and limit the damage uh, so that we can stay on schedule so that the vast majority of our customers get to where they need to go on time. Uh, and when we do that, we certainly make a big point of trying to operate the flight the next day. And, uh, and if it's a case where it's our fault, a mechanical issue, or otherwise we've had very few of those, but when we do have those scenarios, you know, we try to be really generous as far as, you know, issuing out vouchers to customers and in hopes that they'll give us another try. We haven't had a lot of that, um, but uh, but look, it's uh, the 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 skies are crowded. Um, there's a lot of challenges right now out there. Uh, there's still COVID related issues, although there's less of that. There were many cases where you had air traffic control towers that were uh, sparsely staffed because of COVID outbreaks, and that can have massive effects on the whole U.S. air system in terms of how it's managed and how efficiently it's managed. So there's you know look, there's a lot of challenges always. It's a tough business. It's amazing uh, what we do, quite honestly. I mean, flying people, 
around, uh, you know, hundreds of millions each and every year safely um, with amazing precision. Quite honestly, everybody takes it for granted, uh, but it is a tough, tough thing to do. And I think that we as an industry do it exceptionally well. But of course, you know, everybody has some bad days and every customer's experienced it. And, you know, it's sometimes your number's up and uh, it's just your turn to have an inconvenient travel experience, which is obviously something nobody wants. But, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of variables here that we can't control. Weather probably being the single biggest one out there. It really is remarkable every time I step on an aircraft and I look as I'm coming from the jetway onto the aircraft and I look at this giant metal tube and I go, it's stunning that people have figured out that this can actually fly. (laughs) It really is just that mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. And we take it for granted, which is, which is great. I mean, it's an amazing testament to uh, the human ingenuity and uh, it's amazing how it's changed the world in many ways, right? It's made the world so much smaller because we think nothing of getting on an airplane and flying, you know, halfway around the country or all the way across the country. We have family all over the place because it's so easy to travel. Um, and uh, it is amazing. And it's fun to be a part of that. And, uh, you know, it, it's definitely, uh, it, it, it drives us all here at, at Avello. Our, our purpose uh, is to inspire travel. And uh, we, we do that by keeping fares low and and offering great convenience, and uh, and it's something that we care deeply about, and we're really happy to do our part. Yeah, imagine how travel is going to change when we get the Hyperloop. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day we'll be able to beam each other up, around, uh, and at that point we won't need airplanes. But until then, uh, I think airplanes will be pretty important. Yeah, it just reminds yeah. me of Spaceballs when he says, beaming, I'm done with the beaming, no more beaming. <laughs> <laughs> Now you made me want to go pull that one and uh, watch that one. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, uh, Andrew, so much for being here. Andrew Levy, the uh, chairman and CEO of Velo Airlines. Appreciate your time, your insight, all your expertise, and best of luck, uh, not only here in Colorado, but with your business. And maybe you can uh, start flying out of the Springs because it's easier for me to get to the Springs than it is to get to DIA. Well, we'll see what we can do there. But thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Very interesting stuff there from Mr. Levy. And another example of a uh, big-time guest here on this fine, fine show. I do have uh, some other interesting interviews scheduled for the next couple of uh, episodes as well. Uh, I will um, share those when, when, I'm, when I'm closer. Um, if you have a guest idea or you would like to be a part of the uh, program, you can always call the listener hotline at 303-832-0217. You can always call that number. If you have an idea of a guest or you want to be on the show, then you can either call me there or, or send me an email. Uh, my links are there in the description of the show, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. So we can, uh, you know, schedule something. Uh, yeah, there was actually a voicemail I was checking the other day, and I missed it. It was a voicemail sent to me, I think, about a year and a half ago. And it was actually a good story idea, so I'm going to have to work on getting that one on the air, too. Anyway, thanks again for listening. Thanks for being here. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.